Well, my name is Michael. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be hanging around somewhere at the guest check-in. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I get the privilege and the real joy of being able to open up the Bible and explain it today. So if you have your Bibles, get them on out. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Um, that's going to be our anchor text, but we're going to be moving around Philippians a little bit today. Um, as you're finding it, let me set some just brief context for this letter. The Apostle Paul, who's our author here, he's writing from a Roman jail cell in the first century. At this point, he's a seasoned religious renegade. Uh, he's a troublemaker in the Roman Empire and to the influential Jewish minority within that empire. Um, at this point, he and the Philippian Christians he's writing to, they have about a decade of friendship behind them. You can read about the beginning of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16, if you want to make a note and go back and read that. Philippi was a leading Roman colony. It was a city that led in education, commerce, political fervor, um, diversity. It had a rich military and political history. It was the capital of the previous empire, the Greek empire, under Alexander the Great. Uh, the Philippian church, though a religious minority, also, like the city, had some amount of financial means. We know that they had financial means because they keep giving stuff to Paul. Uh, we're going to read about that in a little bit later on in the message in Philippians chapter 4. Um, in fact, this letter was a response to the Philippian church hearing that Paul was imprisoned, worried about him, and so they sent him a bunch of good stuff, and now he's writing back to them to say thank you and to add a few more things. All things considered, Philippi was an affluent, leading city of its region and the most powerful nation in the world. And its church was faithful to the gospel, it was faithful to missions, it was faithful to Paul. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the ethos or the culture of that church was not too dissimilar from Bethel South Campus. Now, Paul does use this letter to the Philippians to challenge the Philippians in their thinking. But it's not predominantly a letter of rebuke like the letter to the Galatian church. This letter has a tone of comfort and encouragement to the Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord regardless of the surrounding circumstances that they find themselves in. So in all of Paul's hardship and in all of theirs, he implores them to rejoice in the Lord. And that is the big idea this morning. If you're a note taker, um, this is going to be a note taker friendly sermon today. This is the big idea. Because God loves us, we can rejoice in him always. It is a simple and I hope you will find today a profound truth that because God Almighty loves us, we can rejoice in Him always. So like I mentioned, we're going to look at Philippians 4.4. 4. We're going to look at a couple of other texts. Um, I have two main points, and both main points are going to answer these two questions. How does God love us? What does the book of Philippians talk about in terms of how God loves us? And then what does that mean? How do, what are the ramifications of that for our ability to rejoice in Him always. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And I'm going to be reading a scripture text today from the CSB translation. Philippians 4, 4 says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I'm going to say that text again. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always always. And then as if to make sure that they understand he really said that, he says, I will say it again, rejoice. 
Main point number one today is this. Because Christ has given us eternal life, we can rejoice in him even in the midst of death. So how does God love us? Well, one way is that Christ has given us eternal life. Well, what does that mean for our ability to rejoice in him? That means even when we face the final enemy, that is death, we can still rejoice in him. Where do I get that? Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 1. If you're in your Bibles, you can flip back just about maybe one page. Philippians 1, verses 20 through 23. It builds some groundwork for our ability to rejoice in him. Here's what Paul writes. He says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. So I'm about being ashamed before his Father in heaven. But that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, that's his body, this means fruitful work for me. What is the fruitful work? It's the fruitful work of making disciples. I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And then you don't have to flip there, but real quick, 314, he talks about this again. He says, I pursue as my goal, What's Paul's goal? My goal is the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. That is what he's living for. So for Paul to live as Christ, to die is gain. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So here in these two scriptures, Paul is longing for heaven. He greatly desires the ultimate joy that is his eternal destiny in Christ. He has a hope of living forever in the presence of God that's so strong that he can't stop meditating on it. He's so torn. Do I want to live? It's Christ. Do I want to die? It's gain. And of course, that would make perfect sense. If you had the same vision of heaven that Paul had, heaven, which is perfect, an unsoiled relationship with God and others, to him, heaven was pure, unadulterated, unending, never-ceasing joy in the presence of King Jesus. It entailed an everlasting kingdom of no pain, no hardship, no loss, no sickness, no financial difficulty, no persecution, no estranged relatives, no divorce, no abuse, no anxiety, no obesity. No, 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 none of those. No mosquitoes, probably. No high school reunions. I like high school reunions. Well, one of you does. No New England Patriots, no awkward Christmas family gatherings, nothing. Nothing that we dismay in this life. Paul is communicating not just that he'd rather be in heaven than in a Roman jail cell, but that he'd rather be in heaven than anywhere else because heaven is the place where the barriers between God and man are removed and we see God for who he really is. Loving, glorious, holy, good, overwhelmingly good, overwhelmingly amazing. Because Jesus had given Paul this hope of everlasting life, he could look at death soberly, soberly and say, come and get me. I'd rather go be with my Jesus any day of the week. To live is Christ, but to die, oh, it's gain. 
Now, you may have noticed that in South Tyler, we don't live in a culture that longs for death to come and escort us to the promised land. No, we live in a culture, we swim in a culture that wants to do everything possible to live our best life, to achieve the highest version of ourselves right here, right now, on earth, and apart from relationship with God. We want desperately to be healthy, wealthy, beautiful, and successful in this life now, right now, not in heaven, now. And we are surrounded by the desire to live on earth as comfortably as we can, as joyfully as we can, with as much pleasure as we can, as long as we can. But of course, this is not just the Tyler culture, this is the human culture. And as affluent as the Philippians might have been, they wanted a better life in the then and there as well. And if heaven is not real, if heaven is not real, if that place that I just described does not exist, then that makes perfect sense. But this hope in attaining ultimate joy through success in this world is a false hope. It is a mirage of an oasis that is always just beyond our reach. Although the human soul was made for joy, and we all know that, right? We feel that. We were made for joy. It was only made for ultimate, never-ceasing joy in heaven. And doesn't your own experience validate that truth? We still haven't found what we're looking for, have we? Still grasping, clinging, clawing. It's almost there. If you're here this morning, you're likely in one of three camps. Camp number one, you just might not be aware that Jesus offers this eternal life to those who believe in him. Eternal life is given to everyone who believes in him. So what is it to believe in Jesus? Well, it is more than just head knowledge. It's more than just intellectual assent to true statements about who Jesus was and what he did on our behalf. It's more than just knowing that he lived a sinless life, that he died for the punishment for our sins, that he, he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It, it is not merely just knowing that those are true statements. Biblically speaking, Belief is relationship with God. It's less like knowing two plus two equals four, or that President Trump lives in the White House, and it's more like knowing no matter what, my parents love me, and so I can call them whenever I need to. Biblically speaking, belief is relationship in true knowledge of God that includes loving him and results and obeying him, that's belief. Some of you here today just might not be aware that that's what it is. And when we believe, we enter into eternal life. And that eternal life continues to grow over time. And one day it's going to end in this eternal bliss. Where there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no sin, no political parties, no sleazy preachers, no radical religious jihadists. This heaven exists, and it's available. There is a real heaven, and it's full of life, and it's full of joy, and it's, it's full of unending glory in the presence of God. That is the good news. Everything we've always wanted is there, and it's not going away. If you want to face the prospect of death with hope, to be able to say with 
Paul to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And you're in that first camp this morning. Well, you apologize for your sins to God. You ask him to come and give you new and eternal life. And he will. That's the first camp. There's a second camp here today. This is a group of Christians, maybe most of us. We believe in the hope of heaven. We've repented. We believe the gospel. We've been baptized publicly to proclaim this truth. We've been walking in the light of Christ for years. But we do not rejoice in eternal life like Paul does. We forget about it. We're distracted by pain. We're distracted by sorrow. We're distracted by the clinging to pleasure in this life. Instead of longing for heaven, we long for our diet to be over so we can eat Fuzzy's tacos again. Or we long to have a little bit more in our paycheck so we don't feel that financial stress all the time. And look, I'll be the first person to tell you, nothing wrong with desiring some Fuzzy's tacos or torchies, whatever, equal opportunity here. Nothing wrong with extra money, but if we desire those types of things more often and with greater intensity than we do heaven, then we have gone amiss. And if you're in that camp today, I just want to encourage you again, rejoice in heaven. I'll say it again, rejoice. It is good news. It is far better than anything this world will offer or even could offer us. And there's a third camp this morning. You're a Christian as well, like the second camp. But maybe some of us have been meditating on death, either ours or someone else's. And God is using it to grow within us a new and a joyful hope of heaven. You find yourself clinging to and rejoicing in this thought. You find yourself realizing that when you see Jesus face to face, all your burdens will be wiped away. And if that's you, the good news is take comfort. It's real. You will not be disappointed. How does God love us? Well, first off, Christ has given us eternal life. Because Christ has given us eternal life, even when we face our final enemy death, we can rejoice knowing that we have eternal life. Amen? Yet, yet, it's good news that this eternal hope of life is not the only thing we can rejoice in. It doesn't mean we can't have hope in this life. However, the here and now hope that Philippians talks about is not a hope in changed personal circumstances. It is a hope in transformed personal perspective. The hope in this life that we see in Philippians, it's not in changed circumstances. It's in a transformed personal perspective. Point number two. Because the Father will provide for us everything we need, we can rejoice in Him in the midst, I want you to catch this, of every unmet desire. Because the Father will provide for us everything we need, we can rejoice in Him in the midst of every unmet desire. How does He love us? He provides everything we need. How can we rejoice in Him? Because in the midst of it, in the midst of it, in the midst of it, he is there. Where do I find that? Let's look at Philippians 4 again. We're going to look at verses 10 through 19. Here's what it says. 
Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. Again, he's writing in response to a gift from the Philippians. He says, you were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity, he's talking about previously, to show it. Verse 11, I don't say this out of need. It was good for you to give to me, but I don't say it out of need. I don't say it out of need. It was good for your sake to give to me. Why didn't Paul need this? He didn't need this to what? Keep reading. For I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content in some circumstances. In whatever circumstances I find myself. Now, when you see content, I want you to think joyful. You can't be content without being joyful. You can't be joyful without being content. They're roughly synonymous. I don't say this out of need. I don't need you Philippians to give me things so that I can then rejoice in the Lord. I don't have that need. Why? I've learned to be content regardless where, where I'm at, what I'm doing. You see that? There's a non-circumstantial contentment that Paul has. Verse 12, I know both how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, how? How is that possible? Content always, any and all circumstances, whatever circumstances, how is that possible? Verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Even score touchdowns, right? No, it doesn't mean that. It means he can be joyful in any and all circumstances. Why? Because he has supernatural resources. He's got resources that the world doesn't have. When the world can't be content in any circumstance, he can because he has God. He has a father who has provided for him. Verse 14, still you did well, Philippians, in partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, where Philippi was, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent my gifts, uh, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Catch this, verse 17, not that I seek the gift. Again, Paul's saying, I'm not looking for you to give me more. I'm not praising you. I'm not flattering you so you give me more stuff. I don't need your stuff. God will provide for me whether you give it or whether somebody else gives it. I'm telling you, it's for your benefit. How's it for their benefit? Well, because verse 17, I seek the profit that is increasing your account. He's talking about heavenly rewards. Paul doesn't need the gift. It's for their sake. He says, but I have received everything in full I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Verse 19. And my God, my Father God, will supply all your needs. And he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians. You're giving me a bunch of stuff, and you might be thinking, well, what about us? We're giving you all this money. What about us? God will supply all your needs too. God is big enough. He's got enough resources. He's got enough riches in glory 
to give everything you need as well. God the Father will provide what we need. He will also provide more than what we need. He will never provide less than what we need. And because of this reality, Paul, who was a man who had been imprisoned, he had been beaten, he had been stoned by angry mobs, he had been falsely accused in court, he had been shamed and rejected by his own countrymen. He struggled with sin, he walked in poverty. This Paul can rejoice He can be content. He can be happy and satisfied and encouraged. Always. He knows that some way, somehow, at some point, the Father's coming through. He's given him what he needs. So we had Christmas this week. We had a Christmas tree on Tuesday. Most of us opened up gifts. Some of us still have a Christmas tree up in our home. I would if my loving father-in-law didn't take it down for me. Thank you. It's good to have them in town. Some of the gifts that we had were just what we needed. We needed something to do life. Some of the gifts were more than what we needed. But unless you bought yourself a gift, I want to clarify, unless you bought yourself a gift, none of us got the gift of bankruptcy on Christmas, did we? We didn't wake up and open a gift and be surprised. You have no more money. Gifts give, they don't take. Now hang with me here. Our life with God the Father supplying all our needs is literally like waking up to Christmas every single day if we would have the eyes to see it. When you're laying in bed, before you even open your eyes, the comfort of a bed is a gift from the Father. You're unwrapping it again. When you open your eyes, the moment you can see light, the gift of sight is once again opened for your life. When you walk over to the coffee machine, you have the gift of this leg working, and that leg working, and this leg working, and that leg working, and being able to breathe, being able to see and smell the coffee, and feel the glorious gift of caffeine starting to run through your veins. Joyful contentment is a perspective. It is a secret understanding of, catch this, the way things really are in a world that is governed by a loving Father. It's not false hope. (laughs) It is not think better thoughts and you're going to attract better things to you. It's real. Like God is real and every good gift comes from him. And every time we have any need provided for us, it is the Father smiling to give it to us. Paul did not need the gifts of the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He didn't need to be out of jail to rejoice in the Lord. He didn't need a wife. He didn't need kids. He didn't need a good-paying job. He didn't need a second home. He didn't need a new car. He didn't need to go listen to Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny Weekend Retreat. He didn't need to read a New York Times best-selling author, Hype Him Up. He just needed faith in the goodness of a God who controls all things and is always loving us. Can I get an amen this morning? Church, this is good news. Now, wait a minute, you might say. Hold on a second. Is this, is this real? I mean, I was studying this. I was like, this cannot be true. 
It's, it is. It's right here. Now, Paul's not saying don't lament. He's not saying we don't lament. Both our sin and the effects of sin in a broken world. Some of us might be protesting right now. Paul, life is brutally hard. It's emotionally depleting. It's financially stretching. It's relationally demanding. If Paul were saying we never lament in the brokenness of this world, he'd actually be contradicting large portions of the Bible. Just read the Psalms. A lot of them full of anger, sorrow, frustration, depression. Jesus himself, it says, was a man acquainted with sorrows. Jesus himself suffered greatly. Paul says, Paul himself says in Romans 9 2, he says, I have this unceasing anguish in my heart because my brothers, he's talking about the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, my brothers are rejecting Christ. I have this unceasing anguish in my heart. No, Paul is not offending the Philippians by ignoring the pains of their life. Nor is he condemning them for struggling with the hardships they endure. He is loving them by reminding them that there is no pain that God the Father is not strong enough to heal. There is no circumstance too devastating that they cannot rejoice in the Father's provision. Paul knew it was possible to both lament in losses and rejoice in the Redeemer. We can do both. We can lament in loss and have an underlying, unyielding rejoicing in the Redeemer. He even talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He talks about his ministry. His ministry is as grieving, yet always rejoicing. It's this paradoxical tension of the Christian life. As grieving, yet always rejoicing. Paul knew that this belief in God the Father supplying all that we need would absolutely revolutionize the Philippians' lives, if they allowed it to. He knew it was a truth powerful enough to help them rejoice in the midst of every unmet desire. Church, when we desire something that God has not yet given, by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice in this truth. We do not need it in order to experience joy in God. If God gives us everything we need to be content, if we can rejoice in the Lord always, if we don't have it, we don't need it to rejoice in Him. If that were not true, if that were not true, then we would be chained to the same sources of joy that the world has. If that were not true. It is all at once, if you can feel the weight of this, it's all at once an offensive truth. How how can I possibly be joyful right now? And at the same time, a freeing truth. That if God really is good, and he really is working out all things for our good, if he supplies everything we need to be content in him, then that is one of the most liberating truths of the gospel. And Christians should be some of the happiest people on earth, not because we're, not because we're lying to ourselves about how hard life is. It's because we're telling the truth about how good God is. I mean, he really is that good. If you haven't heard me preach before, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling with you. I love it when you talk back to me. If you can talk back to me a little bit, I appreciate it. It makes me feel good up here. 
the effects of the world, our sinful flesh, the devil, the impact of the fall, none of them are strong enough to keep God's best from us. Here's what this means. If God gives us everything we need to rejoice in him, then our best life is right now, but it's waiting for us. It's waiting for us on the other side of choosing to rejoice in him always. Do you follow that? We have everything we need to rejoice in him always, even in the midst of lament. So our best life is not next year. Our best life is not when we complete those resolutions. No, we won't. Our best life is on the other side of perspective. It's right now. We don't have a life two years from now. We only have right now. And as we choose to rejoice, not in circumstances, but in the Lord who sovereignly prepares them for our good and for our eternal joy, hallelujah, it'll change our life. It's an invincible joy. What do we want? What are we longing for? What's the circumstance we're longing for? I'll tell you what you're actually longing for, invincible joy. I'll tell you what you're actually longing for, God. He's the only one who can fully satisfy. That is not to say God is the author of sin. It's not to say hard things don't happen. It's not to say we go about and rejoice in hardship. No. It is to say regardless of the lamentable circumstances, God is able to be rejoiced in because no circumstance is big enough to overcome his goodness and his love toward us. The world, our flesh brokenness. It's not strong enough to keep God's loving provision from making, to, making it to us every moment of every day. If you're alive right now, you have the provision of the Lord. Even in sorrow, you can rejoice in him always. And once we see this, we have the power to live in an invincible joy that we want anyway and the world is longing to see. Man, I got to wrap this thing up. Because God loves us, he really, really, really loves us. God loves you. If you're in Christ, God loves you. Even if you're not in Christ, he loves you. But if you're in Christ, you have an invincible joy available. How does God love us? Jesus has given us the hope of eternal life. The Father will give us the provision we need. Therefore, we can rejoice in the midst of death. We can rejoice in the midst of unmet desires. It is true. It's true. As we come to the beginning of 2019, it's likely that you, like me, have already heard some success coaches, health and wellness gurus, motivational speakers talk about how to make 2019 your best year ever. Nothing against that in general. You know what actually makes this your best year ever? Is if you rejoice in the Lord more than you ever had before. You cannot conjure a new reality this year. You can't do it. You can't make circumstances bend to your will. It's not possible. You can rejoice in the Lord always. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as we call out to him and we cry out, Help me, God! I rejoice in you. Help my unrejoicing in you. If we pray that prayer, God, help me to rejoice in you always in 2019, that is a prayer that the Holy Spirit is eager and willing to help us accomplish this year. Isn't that good news?
if, you're an, if you don't believe in Jesus and you're here today, you can say none of this is true, but don't you want it? Don't you wish it was true? Even if you don't think it's true, don't you wish it was? What, what, what if the desire of your heart for lasting peace and joy actually was in Jesus? Wouldn't you want to find out? Wouldn't you want to know why people gather in churches all over the world all the time to worship this Jesus? It's an invitation today. The Lord is calling to your heart. Repent and believe the good news. I want to end today by reading another scripture that I think sums up well these truths. So I'm going to read Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 28 through 39, and then I will pray, and then Joel will come up. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things. Who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all? How will he not with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, God, may we be persuaded, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God loves us, we can rejoice in him always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come this morning.